Welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast. I'm Professor Hitendra Patel, and I'm welcoming you to the multiple episodes we have over the coming weeks and months. I hope you enjoy. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast. Uh, welcome to this new offering, and I'm delighted to say that uh, joining us this evening is a absolute powerhouse in the world of robotics, surgery, and ENT. She's one of the leading lights in the Indian subcontinent, but also she helps surgeons all around the world. And we're going to hear a lot more about her. Her name is Dr. Kalpana Nagpal. So welcome, Dr. Nagpal, for this evening's interview and discussions. Thank you so much, Dr. Hitin. So the uh, we're going to start with a bit of the history about robotics, but I'm a man who likes to stay in the present. So we are going to spend most of our time talking about what's happening here and now over the coming weeks. But I think everyone likes to know a little bit about the background, and um, uh, Dr. Nagpal and I will will evolve this conversation. So in the 1920s, uh, the word robots actually came from a Czech writer, uh, Karol Kapek, and it was actually from the word robota, which means forced labour. And I think our surgical robots are actually forced into a lot of labour, to be honest. Uh, they work very hard. But uh, they are master and control systems. So they actually, we are actually in control of them, which is why it's safe. And don't worry if you're people who are not robotic experts listening to this. So in the 20s, the word arrived. Uh, and, and then if we move forward, nothing much happened really uh, until the 60s when people started writing about robots. Uh, extinguishing the human race. So we have a show in the UK called Doctor Who, where they had Cybermen and various other writers have written about robots in different guises. But really the first time that anything actually happened, uh, Dr. Nagpal, was in the uh, 80s. Um, you may have heard of the Stanford Research Institute and they brought out a brain robot. Um, and so that's the first time in the Western literature that we've heard about robots. Would you agree, Dr. Nagpal, anything else? You, Absolutely that correct. Uh, this Puma 560, it was introduced in the 80s. And yes, they were doing some brain biopsies in Stanford yeah. Research Institute, yes. Yeah. And I I, um, I was reading some ancient texts from India as well recently about uh, original surgeries and this fantastical things that people did in ancient times. But not got time for that this evening. So we'll keep going, okay? So in the 90s... I think that's when keyhole surgery or minimally invasive surgery or what we call as laparoscopic surgery came into its forbearance. It really was a, an amazing change from open surgery to keyhole. And it certainly was brilliant for the patients. Um, they went home earlier with less pain, back to work, socially were able to help their families. However, laparoscopic surgery was very tricky for the surgeon, particularly training the learning curves were very great um did you notice anything like that in the, your specialty uh, in terms of miniature instrumentation and training dr nagpal yes very much in fact i left for savannah georgia i had to uh, you know go and get trained for endoscopic sinus surgery because uh, endoscopic surgeries in ent were happening in a big way i mean 90s was the time when a lot of things evolved in endoscopic surgeries. 
and uh, endoscopic surgeries are still evolving and now there's so much happening as far as uh, you know skull based surgeries go like even lateral skull base anterior skull base all this is happening now but in the beginning of 1990s yes we started doing endoscopic surgeries and um, it was very interesting it was evolving every year so the entire decade a lot of things were happening uh, that was fantastic so endoscopic surgery as well as laparoscopic thank you for Point that one out. So the the whole minimal minimization of surgery um, was driven initially in where the uh, better vision was seen. And so in the 80s and the 90s is when the cameras for these types of surgeries started to improve. And they improved to the point where a few of them became roboticized. And these roboticized cameras then drove the whole race between laparoscopic surgery, so non-robotic, and roboticized or robotic-assisted surgery. And that's what we saw as we went into the decade of 2000. And in fact, the last 20 years, we now have a pro we have several robots around the world that are clinically active and working very well. And that's what we're going to go through and uncover over the coming weeks and months. But why roboticize something? Why make it robotic-assisted surgery? What is the reason for that? So, Dr. Nagpal, would you like to just tell us uh, what the why it's so important? What is it about the robot that makes it so amazing? Well, um, you know, uh, somebody tried, uh, at least in the field of ENT, I must tell you, it was on a porcine model that in 2003, somebody tried submandibular dissection, somebody tried parotid removal, thymus removal using a robot. And they thought, yes, it's much better than laparoscopic because you get 3D vision and enhanced dexterity. And that's why, you know, the dissections became more precise. And so after that, then uh, there were other things that started happening. So first was a valicular cyst removal. This was in 2005. Valicular cyst, you know, is, is the area in the larynx and uh, it's much deeper inside the throat. And then uh, they found it to be very useful because they didn't have to give any external cuts. And uh, from there onwards, then uh, the cancer surgery started happening using robot. Like uh, this, this uh, surgeon O'Malley, you know, he did a lot of uh, square cell carcinomas with the base of tongue. And uh, he found that uh, speech and swollen function was very good and they had better outcomes. And that's how the surgery started evolving. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, more and more surgeons started adopting robotic surgery. So in ENT, it all happened uh, in, um, in 2000. So you're pretty so, amazing. If we did, I just wanted to go back though, because you said some incredible things about the technology. And just to drill down a little bit, if we just take the vision first of robotics, robotic assisted surgery. So, this you mentioned 3D, so this stereo vision. Um, the, the amazing thing about that is, I mean, have you noticed this yourself that if you look on a flat screen with endoscopy and compare it to the depth vision you see 3D? I mean, that's chalk and cheese. Would you not agree? It's completely different. Absolutely. Uh, people who are doing robotic surgeries, you know, they're actually enjoying doing the surgeries because the depth of magnification is so good that uh, the dissection is so precise. You're not injuring the surrounding structures. 
like you know you don't you don't touch the normal uh, structures you're only dealing with the pathology and that is happening because there's a clear demarcation and the, the preciseness is because of this that you know you're getting 10 times the magnification which you cannot otherwise get yeah. and uh, and your hands free like you know you're only uh, using your fingers and hand movements and that you're translating into the robotic arm movements and yeah. whereas in luck it could be your one hand is always occupied and they can yeah. be fatigued because of that. So, so the actually vision, if you see better, you do better. I think that's would be we'd agree on that, wouldn't we? If you see better, you do better. The the um the other thing was that you you just alluded to was that you avoid injuring normal tissue. I think that's another crucial thing. So less trauma for the patient, more precise surgery, just from the vision being better, right? Absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, you can also avoid injuring crucial structures, neurovascular structures. Yeah. Head and neck is full of, you know, major vessels and major nerves. So injuring any of them can lead to major complications. Yeah. So well, traditional surgery will not give you that kind of a vision. Yeah, well, I, I operate on the other end of the body, as you know, as a urologist. So we also have some nerves in the pelvis, not as many as you have, but we have a few. And uh, um, that was one of the crucial selling points of robotic assisted surgery is the preservation of the neurovascular structures which are important for functional outcome because the the new goal now is in cancer surgery anyway and in fact in any surgery to be honest is to avoid injuring and to preserve function so now the new the new norm is keeping your original function but vision back to the vision now may i ask you so yes of course it's 3d uh, and the different models have been used in robotic-assisted surgery, but there are also 3D cameras for laparoscopic surgery. So what separates them? You mentioned it, the arms. So let's talk about the arms now. These The, the arms on a robot are basically controlled by the surgeon, so master-slave model. The surgeon is the master, in case you're wondering who's the master. And the, the robot is obviously does the work we tell it to do. Now, the arms are very sensitive. They, they have less tremor because they're more stable, because they sit in very um, powerful arms. But the movements, et cetera, can be changed and can be moved according to what type of surgery you're doing. So in Dr. Nagpal, in your world, you have millimeter precision. Uh, in my world, it can be one or two millimeters. Yours is less than a millimeter. So... Let's just talk about that for a second, the control of the arms. Do you want to just tell me a little bit about why the difference between the arms versus you doing it with your hands? You know, uh, robotic surgery in otolaryngology was more important to access the oropharynx, larynx, larynx, Now, these are deeper areas in the throat where your hands cannot even reach. So these are completely inaccessible areas, tight areas, sensitive areas, and so now your coarse hand movements can be translated to miniature arm movements. You know, your hand hand movements can be 180 degrees, and also yeah, there is you know complete dexterity, and you can move them as you want. And it and as I said, you can reach all those hidden areas which you otherwise cannot reach with your coarse big hands. And the human arms have anyway a lot of limitations. You know, the the, the human wrist. Everybody knows that you cannot move at 180 degrees. So the robotic arms are like snake-like yeah. arms. They're only 5mm instruments, and they're just fine instruments. You know, we needed them. 
And yeah. that is how more and more the surgeons started believing. And that is why a lot of things are happening in this area. Oropharynx, hypopharynx, larynx, laryngopharynx, palate, yeah. Yeah. pharyngeal wall. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, many, I mean, amazing things are going on, aren't they, in, in all our worlds in this area. So, so with the arms, there's another part of the arms. Um, the hands, the human hands can only turn to end to the fourth freedom of movement. And in fact, the robotic arms can move set to the seventh, which is incredible. It means literally they can spin 360 degrees, which allows incredible dexterity within your operative field. And I think that for me is revolutionized pelvic surgery. Um, the 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 ability for those hands to completely spin. Now, but can I just ask you something else about robots to do with eyes and hands? Because we we say that surgeons have the eyes of an eagle, that the the strength of a lion and the hands of a woman. I'm going to say, and I'm not being sexist. Women have much better hands than men, and I know that. I'm sure you agree. And in no, fact, I would certainly like to agree. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, that, that that sort of concept about a surgeon, I think a robot, uh, would you agree, a robot actually amplifies all those three qualities? Hand-eye coordination is very, very important, and that's an important prerequisite. You know, sometimes uh, people, I don't know why they say I play very good carom, you know, when I play with my male colleague. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and everyone says, oh, that's the reason you're a good robo-surgeon. I, I'm able to hit good shots. So brain, hands, eye coordination is really important in this kind yeah. of a for, yeah. for, for, for any of the uh, viewers who don't know what carom is, it is a fantastic game based out of India, but we have it in London as well. You know, you can get it anywhere now. In fact, in East Africa, where my family are from also, it's a wonderful game. Uh, uh, I recommend you should play it. Certainly look it up. Look it up on Google. But, but back to our back to the robots. Um, so um, these arms and these this vision uh, are all fantastic. And we have control because we're the, we've got a master console control system. Uh, but one of the biggest problems in surgery, okay, it has to be when you have a new piece of equipment, there's two things. One is how do we get our hands on it? Can we afford it? The economics. And the other part of it is the training. So I just want to delve a little bit into that um, in this introductory uh, issue of our, of our podcast. So do you want to just tell me in terms of buying a robotic system and then financially running it in your hospital, how difficult or how easy is that? Well, since otolaryngology happened much later, what I'm saying is application of robotic surgery in otolaryngology happened much later. So the robotic system only existed in the hospital. Urologists were doing, gynecologists were doing, and colorectal uh, surgeons were doing. And so they were doing for at least five or six years before I started in my hospital. I'm lucky because I'm uh, working in a corporate setup, and in India, corporate hospitals do have robots. Yeah. We have about 72 robots in our country. And uh, so that's how I got uh, exposure to this. Now, when I saw people doing it, and that's how I developed interest and uh, I would keep observing and uh, and uh, even in the Western world, not much was happening in the early 2000s. And uh, you guys were already leading, you know, you were doing uh, major volumes, a lot of uh, robotic surgeries already happened in your field. So uh, uh, as far as affordability goes, yes, 
uh, initially there was only one kind of robot the injective surgicals made and now we have lots of robots now we also have an indian made robot we have chinese robot and many lot of affordable robots have uh, now come into the market mm-hmm. uh, which are i think uh, one fourth or one fifth the cost so yeah. that is why now more and more hospitals are buying so it's no longer so thank you that's this is one of my favorite subjects that's why i asked you because i i'm a great believer and i i'm sure i know you are as well from having spoken to you in democratizing surgery we want the best operations to be given to all patients from all around the world so access to the best technology is important for everybody and i'm so happy i'm happy to say this that there there are there's competition out there and therefore the prices are going down I'm glad you didn't have to fight for robots like I had to. But we have a actual program for um helping people um organize a business plan to purchase different types of robotic systems. Uh that's been something I've done for the last 20 years. So I remember initially the way that I used to get people to buy these things was to do it as a I'm a team player, you see. I got people to work together. So we got the pelvic team to get together the colorectal surgeons the gynecologists and the urologists all got together and we said oh we got too many surgeries for one robot so we bought three and that's how we managed to get everybody on early in the pelvic scene and then like you said then the secondary people use got got in there in terms of upper gi uh, ent etc thoracic um cardiology etc uh, but but anyway but that's by the way um now that's we know they they're still not cheap but it's also running costs and so volume if you have high volume surgery you can minimize the costs and I mean, that's one of the things tell me with your type of specialty the instruments are very very delicate they're 3 mm 5 mm 5 mm is a maximum but the pediatric um, instruments now are used in the ENT also I was told is that correct well uh, we do not have pediatric instruments in india and oh. uh, even the single port is not available here we i started with si system and uh, that had 5mm instruments and now it's xi system which is 8mm instruments no i don't have a choice as as we all know a robot can be only one and you know one hospital has one robot so now since majority of them are happy with 8mm instruments now i had to adapt to my you know this technology although 8mm was not very suitable for ent but i had no choice because i can't ask for a separate robot <laughs> this is why you are such a brilliant surgeon you've adapted you into from your career that i've seen i've looked through your career you've had to adapt so often and so many times it's you know, i should congratulate you for doing that but then all good surgeons adapt and you are clearly one of the top surgeons to do that Thank you. see we are, we are spoiled where we are you see we get to ask for little instruments and they just buy them for us so we're lucky but um adapting is good now tell me um uh, we because uh, we, we digress i'm i'm just trying to keep us on track with the discussions around purchase so let's say you have the robot and it's in your hospital how difficult is it to organize training and the le- and managing the learning curve for you and your colleagues that's an excellent question you know i'm happy you asked me because when i started i didn't have a mentor because i was the first one to start in otolaryngology and um, even for the training i had to go to korea i had three options but i chose korea because it's closer and i went for the basic training and advanced training everything happened in one week and that's it 
And then I had to come and start my first surgery. And now I requested one cancer surgeon who was doing in Delhi, who was doing robotics, not a otolaryngologist, but, you know, he was a general cancer surgeon. And uh, he helped me with the first case, meaning helped me, meaning he was sitting beside. And after that, I had no mentor. Even though the rule said that, you know, the first 10 cases have to be mentored, otherwise you cannot do and all that. But, you know, there was no choice. So luckily the hospital cooperated. And from there onwards, I was on my own. And um, unfortunately, there's no formal training program yet. Uh, reasons being many. Uh, there are no cadaver labs, no animal labs, no simulation labs. I mean, I'm still struggling with all of them. And there are a lot of observers who come to me and I keep um, telling them, encouraging them slowly now. Um, in, uh, you know, I was uh, the one initially and now we have about five or six more doing. But in India, otolaryngology, robotic surgery still remains in its infancy. Even in the world, I'm told yeah. it's still uh, much less. The percentage of surgeries is much less yeah. as compared to other specialties. But in India, it's really, yeah. I mean, I hope someday somebody comes and helps and starts a training center. Well, well, it, it may it may happen after someone hears this podcast. I hope they I hope that someone comes and helps, and so we certainly will be supportive. I was going to say the uh, in terms of training in general, uh, the the literature and experience says that there's a much flatter learning curve for using the robotic assisted systems compared to the original endoscopic surgeries or laparoscopic surgeries, simply because of the advantages you and I have been discussing better vision, uh, the better instruments, better arm movements, and also stability and a lack of fatigue. You get less tired in robotics compared to doing complex surgery, compared to um, laparoscopic surgery. I, I remember back-breaking laparoscopic prostatectomies and kidney surgeries and all sorts of things, cystectomies. Um, you know, it's it's hard on your body. Whereas in robotics, you're sitting down, which we, I, we forgot to mention, but of course, you're seated, you're sitting comfortably, you can stop for a drink, you know, you, you bathroom breaks, all the human things that people think that they get if you work in an office, we don't get as surgeons. So tell me, do you think your health is better and you're less tired or do you think you just do more operations now because you're a robotic surgeon? You know, practicing ENT is hard for a surgeon in terms of, um, you know, maintaining the condition of your spine because otolaryngology surgeries involve a lot of bending and sometimes awkward positions you know you handle the endoscope with your one arm and your arm starts aching towards the end of the day and your spine is hurting uh, you know your ear surgeries master surgeries involve three hours or three and a half hours of bending and similarly most surgeries need bending of your neck and not much of ergonomics was spoken about earlier yeah. It is now that more and more people are talking about good ergonomics for the surgeon. Earlier, yeah. nobody used to care. And now I would like to tell all the young otolaryngologists, please focus on your ergonomics. And also, one of the reasons to take up robotic surgery is this. You would be conveniently sitting on your console. You can adjust your arm length. You can just adjust your leg length, your height. You know, you're, you're all the time resting. So yeah. it's much easier. You can do a lot of surgeries on the same day and not get fatigued at all. So interesting, you mentioned ergonomics. Uh, we published a paper uh, in the journal Surgery um, a few years ago uh, with my Norwegian group. And we were looking exactly this in terms of even with robotics, you can get injuries. So 
with the vision, when you're looking down the camera, if you we sometimes forget to blink because we're looking down a microscope and it's similar with robotic assisted surgery. So I teach people to blink regularly, take a break from the screen, any screen, whether it's laparoscopic, whether it's the actual open field of surgery, or if it's in the robot, you can still get those same eye fatigue, neck fatigue, back fatigue. Those are the things. And then recently, there are also neuropathy can occur if you lean for too long on parts of your body. So we should both warn our colleagues about that because although it's not common uh it is possible and so we're trying to avoid those things and trying to make a better journey for the surgeon because after all we've got to look after ourselves right we're yeah. busy looking after the stretching exercises are advised in between now uh, and then you know whether you get a chance uh, uh, dr Nupa, are you saying we should do yoga yeah because i'm I, i'm happy to do it if you say so <laughs> I will. I'm not doing yoga myself, but I believe it's a very good practice. You know, people so, do yoga. Well, well, I I meditate and I do various aspects of qigong. So, so I maybe we should do a podcast on stretching next time. Yeah, that'd be good. But yeah, but yeah, we digress again. I, I, it's so lovely to speak to you. Actually, I'm very honoured to be talking to you. So, um, I have lots of questions for you. But if we move along now, so we've we've covered the history. We've covered the um uh, purchasing of the robot and it's with its advantages and purchase we've covered the training uh, um so and we, we've when we've talked about your specialty and some of the some of the difficulties um but let's talk about some of the wins let's talk about some of the you know the the let's call it headline things about why if you were in a somewhere else starting out fresh okay as a surgeon and money was no object what would you do? How would you set your department up for your ENT department with robotics being central to that? What would you, how would you do it? Well, since we do not have any formal training program, you know, we can start doing a lot of um, proctor-based programs, you know, like since I'm the proctor now, I should be conducting regular CMEs, like we call it continual medical education programs with uh, some credit points uh, given to the students. So we conduct that regularly. And then since it's a better learning curve that we discussed, you know, we can explain to them, you know, once upon a time when I was learning thyroid surgery, when I was doing my internship, I could hardly see the recurrent laryngeal nerve when the senior surgeon was showing it all because we were standing in groups and from far, what could you see? Whereas yeah. now when I do a thyroidectomy, I can demonstrate the recurrent laryngeal nerve so well yeah. they can understand the course so well. so this you know visual learning it it it, it has a long-term impact the memory is there for long and but, so i would like to in fact i started this organization women association of otolaryngologists of india and this is my main goal to teach the youngsters you know and uh, encourage them to do robotics and um, also maybe collect funds and help them, uh, you know, because the youngsters may not be able to spend that much money traveling to a different country. And then even doing three days may be costing $3,000, which is not possible for everyone. No. So we should be uh, raising funds for, for such people. And I have a lot of things in my mind and I hope it works one day. But yes, mostly it's learning, 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 focusing, focusing, focusing. Yeah. I think it will help everyone. And... Yes, well, practical training I, is very, very important. 
I was going to say, first of all, congratulations on the on the on the organization which you are the president of. I mean, that's for, to do that as you have done it and the way you've done it with kindness and consideration for all is pretty phenomenal. And I know you just finished a big meeting just a few days ago, so I'm thank you for joining us today. But you did say something very important, and that was about you said lots of important things, but you, that last point you're making about visualization low-cost training, democratizing training also. And I want to just give you some good news. That And that is that the equipment is available in open surgery, in any type of surgery, open lap or robotic, where you can show better visualization from these new designed cameras that go into the lights, which are able to actually project better open surgery. We, we've been, I've been helping design that. But, um, uh, but that's for another day to talk about. But Good news is these things are becoming available. Uh, so your wishes and dreams are going to become realities. I think sooner than we think, right? But I think uh, on that note, I th on that note, Dr. I would like to first of all thank you. It's been an honour to talk to you, um, and thank you for supporting the podcast. And I know we're going to be talking again. Um, so just thank you to everyone for listening, and um, let, I hope to speak to you all at our next uh, session. Thank you and good evening from the Global Robotic Assisted Surgery Podcast. Thank you.